Welcome to Lions Radio Network, where the show takes you on a roaring adventure with entertaining and stimulating topics focusing on entertainment, sports, business, world news, along with many other topics. Whatever your interests are, you will find them right here on Lions Radio Network. The freedoms that Americans enjoy are not free and can be attributed to the dedicated service and the blood, sweat, and tears of many generations of our nation's military. The Military Hour is dedicated to the servicemen and women, veterans, and their families that have made the sacrifice to defend our Constitution and country. Military service is being part of something that is greater than yourself. General Joseph Gunford, 19th Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And now, it's the Military Hour with your host, Chad Wood. Hey, good afternoon and welcome everyone to another uh Military Hour with Chad Wooten. Uh, I am your host, and uh, I'm excited today. We've got uh, another great guest and uh, contributor to the uh, the veterans populace here um, that uh, I, I'm actually privileged enough to work with uh, here in the uh, upstate of South Carolina. He's a gentleman who has an illustrious history of uh, his time in Vietnam, as well as being able to uh, get out and uh, help to continue to assist the veterans populace. Um, with not only mental health, but also helping to combat uh, veterans' homelessness and an array of other things, and a really interesting guy. So I'm really excited to get uh, Dr. Craig Burnett on on the show with us here in a few. Um, just wanted to take a quick minute and thank all of our viewers who are listening around the world uh, and nationwide um, that are taking interest in, in what we've got going on here. You know, we pride ourselves uh, in, in talking through and working through uh, current veterans issues and finding new ways and uh, and amenities that we can utilize to help people to bolster their strength mentally, physically, and uh, as community members so that they can uh, move forward and, and, you know, look back at their military time uh, with some favorable views, but know that they're now uh, moving on into a new chapter and give them some tools for the toolbox so that they can be successful as they move out and move forward. So, uh, I'd like to give a big shout out to uh, Donna Lyons uh, and the Lyons Radio Network, who's uh, done a lot of really great work getting us together. Um, we're now on iHeartRadio, uh, as well as uh, starting to have an impact with uh, Spreader.com. Uh, and you're also able, as always, to find our show uh, after the fact on iTunes, uh, if, if you want to go back and listen in. So, thanks to... Uh, Donna Lyons and iHeartRadio for picking us up, um, but most importantly, thank you to all the viewers who are uh, making this happen for us and um, letting us know that we're actually uh, pushing something out that's making a difference. Um, so with that said, um, I'd like to, to roll into uh, a little bit about uh, Dr. Craig Burnett. Um, you know, he was a, an Army Infantry Platoon Commander uh, out in Vietnam, um, served some time out there, and um, one of my favorite parts of getting to work with him and what I do up here is the fact that I get to uh, help him and utilize the amenities that we have here in the update to help combat homelessness. Um, we've been involved in, uh, in counts uh, here in the upstate, which is 
something that he's been doing for an extended period of time, trying to help find those uh, disabled veterans that are homeless, that are out there in the streets, and get them some get them some assistance, whether it's getting them reconnected with the VA, um, getting them some uh, some housing assets, um, or or you know getting them into rehabilitation programs. So, with that said, I'd like to uh, go ahead and introduce my guest, Dr. Craig Barnett. Craig, are you here with me? I'm here, Chad. Uh, please call me Craig. I don't answer to doctor very well. I usually answer to hey you. So Chad, I'm here and, and looking forward to our conversations today and if people call in any conversation we might have with them. So and that's what I'd like for it to be as much as possible a, a conversation. We'll start out with me and you and maybe later on there'll be others that want to converse as well. Thank you for having me. It's Absolutely. A, it's an honor to be asked. It's an honor and I'm humbled to be asked. Thank you. Well, and I uh, appreciate that, and that's actually a, a great opportunity for me to talk about uh, our uh, our call-in line. If uh, if there's any viewers or listeners that uh, at this time would you know uh, start having questions or or something that they'd like to uh, propose to Dr. Barnett or uh, or myself about what we see and how how we're able to help people, uh, feel free to call in. That phone number is six four six 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 eight eight four nine four, and we'll take calls as we can. Uh, so. Craig, I just want to kind of get to know you a little bit. Uh, would you mind telling me a little bit about, you know, where you grew up and uh, and how you ended up transitioning into the military? Sure. Um, well, I was actually raised in upstate South Carolina. Um, I know all you listeners, especially if you're nationwide, have heard of my, my hometown. Well, actually, the town I live closest to or a farm was closest to, it was called Fingerville. Fingerville, and I ain't making that up. If you look on the map, there's a Fingerville, South Carolina, up and upstate, and it was between. I live between it and New Prospect, uh, on a on a dirt farm. We raised everything, but peaches was our money crop. Uh, back in those days, I was born in 1946. Back in those days, in upstate South Carolina, your money crops as a farmer, if you weren't raising cattle, was peaches, tobacco, and cotton. Some people raised all of them. We were we raised peaches. So one of the things that uh, I learned early on was uh, hard work and uh, doing the right thing and making a job complete, etc. Um, I was very fortunate. Uh, we, we were not able for me to afford to go to college, but I was able to get a scholarship uh, to college to put a little ball, do a little academic work. And while I was there, in the first couple of years I was there, this uh, Army guy came walking into a class one day and said, anybody here that wants to sign up for ROTC, we'll give you $40 a month. Well, I, I put both hands up. I was hoping they'd pay me 80 I guess. But anyway, I volunteered, <laughs> got into ROTC, and um, in 1968, when I graduated, I was commissioned a second lieutenant in the Army. And from there, uh, went to branch schools, went to a couple of specialty schools, uh, Jungle Warfare School in Panama. In 1969, I joined the 3rd Brigade of the 82nd Airborne in Vietnam and became a platoon leader there. So that's what got me that far getting into the military, and I'll wait for you to ask later on if you want to know how I ended up doing the work I did later on. But that's that's basically uh, grew we'll up. Get, we'll be getting to that. Okay. So I grew up in a small rural area in upstate South Carolina, Um 
back in those days in the 60s, you were either going to get drafted or you volunteered or you figured out a way to stay out of the draft or stay out of the military, and there's a lot of different ways to do it back then. Um, but I knew once I graduated college, you know, I was going to be drafted, and I decided, hey, I can make a little bit of money if I join this ROTC program. So I did, and that's the way I got in. So, uh, and and what year, uh, I, I think you just said it, but what year did you get to Vietnam first? I got there in 69. Okay, okay, and you were with the 82nd. Right, 3rd Brigade. The whole division wasn't there. It was just the 3rd Brigade, the Golden Brigade, the 2nd of the 05, the 1st of the 08, and I can't remember the other battalion, and B Troop 1st 17th Cav. And um, it had actually been sent over there as a reaction force after Tet, whenever Westmoreland asked for more troops in 68. And the 3rd Brigade, we okay. rotate in the 82nd Division. There were three brigades at that time. And the 3rd Brigade got the call to pack up and go to Nam, and I joined them in 69 um, and spent okay. the next few months with them. So, so what was, uh, what you know, being an Iraq veteran myself, uh, you know, we, we fought different wars. I uh, spent some time in the jungle. I got to tell you, it's my, I, I feel for you guys because uh, while I didn't have to sling lead uh, against an enemy in the jungle, I know how horrible it can be just – as a as an environment, I, I can't imagine what it was like, uh, you know, dealing with a um, basically a terroristic, uh, you know, entity that using using booby traps as well as uh, conventional and guerrilla type tactics. Um, so, what was uh, where in Vietnam were you at, and uh, and what were you, what was your uh, experiences like? Well, you know, Chad, it's really interesting because I love it when I talk to you guys who are in Iraq and Afghanistan, and they'll say they'll say, "Hey, how'd you do it in the jungle?" I go, "Are you kidding me?" I'd much rather fight in the jungle than house to house and room to room and never know what's and banging in a door. Hell, I don't want to be banging in a door, you know. So anyway, it's always, <laughs> no, 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 you had it worse than me. No, you had it worse than I did. So in terms of the environment and the you know, thing, you know, the bottom line was, you know, quite frankly, being hurt, being killed was only never more than a step away based on what was going on. But good question. I ranged as far south as the edge of what was called the Plain of Reeds down in the Delta. And that was a couple of operations, 82nd. Then we moved up, or we we moved around a lot, but I was in places called the Iron Triangle, uh, the Hockmon Bridge, um, different places, moved by Den, Black Virgin Mountain. The 25th Infantry Division was on my left flank. The Big Red 1, 1st Infantry Division was on my right flank. 1st uh, Cav was above me. Um, and so we just operated different kinds of places, rubber plantations, jungle, yeah, like jungle like you wouldn't believe. And then I had a part, I had another part of a tour, of that tour of which I was an advisor to the South Vietnamese Army, a lot of mountain yards too. And I actually was in the Central Highlands up in the mountains in um, Pleiku, Anke, Dok To, um, the Idrang. I never got to the Idrang Valley, but over in that neck of the woods towards the border. So, uh, Chad, I had different environments from triple canopy jungle to rice paddies. And, and down the Delta, i got to tell you, it was so thick with mosquitoes. I, I, I'm not making this up, and if there's any Vietnam veteran there that was down there knows this, at night when you laid there on ambush or you're in your night defense, NDP, your night defensive perimeter, you literally waved your hand in front of your face. You had it wrapped in towels so that you could breathe and not breathe in mosquitoes. It was, in that regard, you're right. Wow. It was, 
it was times when it was not too cool. But again, let me go back. Combat is combat is combat. And for me, I had gone to jungle warfare school in Panama and fighting in the jungle. And then I look at what y'all did and had to put up with. And if somebody said, take your pick, Craig, I'd head back to the jungle. So <laughs> anyway. Well, I, Thanks, I, and I'm, I just had a conversation with, uh, you, you know, Teresa, well, her, uh, her nephew just deployed, uh, with, uh, I think, uh, third infantry division or something like that. They're pushing out to, uh, to Iraq. And I was sitting there showing him pictures of, you know, okay, well here, you know, when you hit this road, watch out for this. There's a floating bridge. You know, right. Derek Popham blew that up. You know, we had Derek on uh, last show. And, you know, we were like, uh-huh. oh, there's a floating bridge out there outside of Alkheim. You know, Derek blew that up and, you know, oh, whatever. And, you know, so watch out for this. Watch out for that. You know, get out there in the open desert. But I tell you, man, I I like uh, I like the fact that I was mobile. Um, you know, we had we had trucks and uh, and we were we were canvassing uh very open areas of desert on my first deployment. Now my second deployment in Fallujah, you know, it's uh it is that house to house, you know, three block warfare that, you know, it's all over, it's up up above you, all around you. Um so I you know, I, I definitely have some empathy uh with you with with the amount of change that it sounds like you had to go through uh throughout those deployments. So let me ask you well, about what um what was what was kind of the construct of your platoons? Was it what was like how large were your elements and, and what kind of things were y'all doing? Sure. Well, and let me go back for one second on that, Chad. You're right, because if it's in Triple Canopy Jungle or the Thick Jungle, which it was, and it was house to house, as far as I'm concerned, you know, combat was up close and personal. You know, it wasn't like picking somebody off at 1,000 meters or trying to anyway. But anyway, um, going back to my platoon, uh, there were two types of elements that I worked with there in the infantry and in the mechanized infantry. During the dry season, in, in Vietnam, you had the monsoon six months, and then six months dry season. And in the dry season, we could move on what we call the hard stand. I'm not sure y'all's lingo, but the hard stand was roads and stuff like that. And through the rice paddies, it dried up. You had M1, M1-1-5, M1-1-4s, and those things transported us around. You had 260s on each side, 160 on each side, left and right, and a 50 caliber up front. And every now and then, if you got lucky, you got some kind of recoilless rifle going along with you. Um, yeah. So we yeah. would do the recoilless rifle. Was the, uh, that was the precursor to the uh, the tow missile, which is something that came about that uh, my my uh, units um, or my platoons that I was working with. Um, that was one of our specialties, and that's uh, y'all's. The lineage of that uh, starts with the recoilless rifle, and uh, and as well as uh, you know those those big guns that you're talking about. That's that's my bread and butter from from my war. So kind of got a little bit of a yeah. uh, little bit of goosebumps right there that's great well i'll tell you something interesting too and this is the way things evolve too you never know about there's you know we know about rules of engagement you know you had a lot more rules of engagement than i had i only had about three you almost had about 30 it sounds like but anyway um <laughs> with the one with the with the recoilless rifle we had a round called beehive and i don't know if you ever heard of that or talked to some of us old guys but in, 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 think about this. In close terrain, in, in a rubber plantation, in a jungle line you're coming up on or something like that, Beehive was these. It was this shell that had a 1,000 metal flechettes in it. And you could set a – you had a ring, we called it a ring, on it to where at 50 meters, 100 meters, 152, wherever I set the ring, that's when the secondary explosion would occur and those flechettes would come out in a line. And it sounded like bees humming through there, you know. And so you talk about anti-personnel, it was great. Yeah, and we used to, that's awesome. We used to, 
Well, we used to set up on a in a rubber plantation. We'd set up and look down a row of rubber trees. We'd set up on the edge of it, and we'd we'd put um, trip players up and down this one path where we thought they might be moving in the evening. And we'd just sit there with the round in the tube. And if a trip player went off, boom. And then you went out later on to see what you got. So, but now <laughs> check this out. Later on, they they I don't know who these people are, but they outlawed the beehive round, I don't think you've ever seen one, Chad, in y'all's army, in your arsenal now, because it was, quote, inhumane. I said, are you Mm. kidding me? I think a claymore is probably inhumane, too, but by God, I'd never give one up, you know, so so my point to all that was those are the kinds of weapons we had with, like I said, the 50 cal, the 260s, and then finally, based on what your operations were, if you were dismounted, a, a, a regular infantry platoon back then, I don't know what they are today, had 36 people in it, okay? And that's counting the platoon sergeant and counting the lieutenant. And I'm sorry, not counting the sergeant and lieutenant. I never had more than maybe 22 if I was lucky. Um, wow. And and within the – when I had APCs, when I was working off APCs, you, you're supposed to have – I think it was seven or eight of those things. I'd usually have about four. And and we worked off of that in different configurations. So it was really based on now. The just for just for clarity, uh, for for some oh. listeners that might not know, is are you a, APC an armored personnel carrier? Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, it's armored personnel carrier. And based on the okay, cool. The yeah, rain and the time of year, you may or may not have certain assets because if it's the monsoon and you can't get off of a paved road, then your APC is pretty damn worthless out there where we're operating sometimes. You know, so okay. so it was really different kinds of things. When I was an advisor, it was just straight grunt work. You know, there wasn't any APCs around or anything like that. It was just, right. Anyway. <laughs> so were you uh, were you there when uh, when they brought over the uh, the the AR-15 and or the the M-16, I should say rather? Yes, uh, actually, and this goes back to my history. You know. I, I, I just turned 72 years old, so let me just remind the people I'm talking a long time ago. My memory, you know, fails me sometimes. But in early in the war, 64, 65, uh, and this is from some of my Marine buddies, too, uh, who were up around the Z and up in the hill fighting up around K-Sign, et cetera. When they first started, when they first went over, they had 14s, and then 15s and 16s. Well, 15s and 16s are a little bit different, but 16s, let's say. They were having them problems jamming. They would get jammed, and I've heard stories of Marines being found dead with cleaning rods jammed down the barrel of their weapons trying to unjam it. And right, because I think the way, what was uh, passed off by the whiz kids was that it was a self-cleaning weapon. And so they, they, uh, the amount of cleaning gear that was uh, distributed uh, to y'all was, uh, was a lot less than what, would, what we went downrange with with our uh, modern uh, M16s and M4s. So, um, and, and then what, it, what I believe, if I'm not mistaken, they also they might have uh, slacked on maybe uh, chroming the barrel or something, and that caused a lot of issues. That's, you're exactly right. I'll see him next week. And if we get into the psychological and treatment up later on, you'll see how this connects. I have a close friend of mine who was in the hill fightings around Quezon, a Marine, and um, he he knew of the weapons jamming. He had seen what had happened. He was a grunt. You know, all Marines are grunts, I know, but he was out there in the midst of all of it. Purple Heart recipient, 
highly decorated. He wrote a letter to his mother who sent it to the congressman, local congressman. This is in 64 or 5, and complaining about those weapons. I mean, I'm why would I make this up? <laughs> so anyway, he yeah. wrote that letter. The congressman got a hold of it and got a hold of some people at the Pentagon. This guy's name is Forrest. The next uh, – it's not Forrest Gump, y'all. It is named Forrest, though. Um, <laughs> the, next, the next guy, the next call he gets on the horn they get is telling Forrest or Corporal Farley. His last name's Farley. I know he doesn't mind me telling his name. Um, he gets a call to come in. I don't know how it all worked. But bottom line is he ends up on a, on a ship out off the coast talking to a one-star Marine general who has got the letter in hand. And it's saying, he said, he said, Craig, he said, I thought this was going to throw me in the brig. He said, I thought I was a yeah. done guy. He said, he yeah. said, but the journal was saying, son, we're aware of this, care of it, trust us, don't write any more letters to your mother. Because they have these constraints. <laughs> I mean, hey, you, know, mate, you, you know. can't make, you can't make this stuff up. So far, we no, were, man, that's that's one of the things that uh, people people underestimate the most is the uh, is the power of a uh, compassionate. And loving mother back home, man. They'll they'll fight for you tooth and nail. I know my mom's uh, made extreme efforts to make sure that we were taken care of, no matter how far away I was from her. So you can't don't ever well, don't ever underestimate the power of love from a mama. Well, uh, Chad, let me and also I know we're going off on the sides. I hope the listeners won't sign off, but trust me, you are so true because my mother here in South Carolina, God rest her soul. And it used to take about two weeks for stuff to get to us from back home. Would would make <laughs> would fry country ham and make homemade biscuits and wrap them in aluminum and send them to me and my platoon in Vietnam. And of course, by the time they got there, they'd have a little bit of green on them. But we thought that helped us out with all the diseases we were fighting anyway. Or you just pick the pieces yeah. out. And so I, I would get country ham biscuits from my mother from South Carolina, and when it would come in. They go, LT, you got a package, and everybody run for me because we knew we were going to have ham biscuits that night. So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's great. That's great. Well, hey, I uh, just want to uh, remind our listeners that uh, if you if you have some experiences from Vietnam, maybe you're a family member or a spouse of someone who's uh, been through some of the experiences that Craig and I are talking about, feel free to uh, shoot us a call. That call-in line is 646-668-8494. Uh, now, Craig, I, I want to um, kind of take this time to transition and, and talk about uh, the wonderful things that you've done since. Um, but, you know, to, I think that to properly step into it, can you talk to me a little bit about what it was like coming home from uh, from Vietnam and, and what that was like transitioning back into what you would hope to be a normal world and then, you know, maybe what the VA was like at that time and, and some of the trials and tribulations that you all saw? Uh, yes, Chad, I appreciate that. And there's actually several different facets to it, and I'll try to come as quick as possible and not get too detailed on it. Uh, I mean, everybody knows and hears these ideas of how it was. You know, you were demonstrated against, you were stood upon, you were called a baby killer, um, you know, and, and, and none of that spit upon or baby killer happened to me. But what did happen in my transition and actually, I came back twice, but in, in that transition back, this is this is a fact for sure. A couple of things that relate to, I think, what we saw later on down the road amongst us Vietnam veterans. First of all, when you got into either San Francisco or Seattle, mainly is where you came back to, 
um, you were put in this room and you're given this clipboard. And on the clipboard, there was this list of ailments that you could have that ranged from, I guess, malaria on to, you know, you name it. And the, and the guy standing on the front is usually a spec four and E5, something like that. He, he has this clipboard in front of him. And he says, okay, folks, you fill this out. If you check yes to any of these, you'll be here for about three days for processing. If you check no, we'll have you out of here for 12 hours. Now, trust me, we all drew straight lines right down that no column. You know, just get me out of here. Get me home. And so, so that was one thing. He also was very clear that if you wear your uniform outside, we, we would advise you not to wear your uniform or you might find yourself in, in some lousy situations. Well, the thing that happened to me, Chad, was I had, or I could get when I got back, if you wore your Class A's back um, back then on at least the airline I was on, it's now defunct, called Eastern Airlines, you could get a ticket for half price. Well, that's money in my pocket and money in my folks' pocket. So I put my Class A's on, and all I was, all I had on it was I did have my rank on it, and I did, I did wear my CIB. I was proud of that, that CIB. I didn't wear, well, I had my patches, you know, 80 second patch. Anyway. Right. What, and what happened was interesting, and I didn't recognize it until after the fact. When I went to the civilian airport in Seattle, I was walking, and I was the only person in uniform around there. As I was walking down the walkway going to where my plane was taking off, I don't know how else to describe it. It was like the parting of the, of the siege. Everybody just kind of moved to the side, and I walked through. And it wasn't like I was walking down the red carpet. It was people just kind of staring at me, and nobody said a word. I mean, not a word. And, and I didn't, hey, all I wanted to do was get on the plane and get home. So I get on right. the plane, and I'm sitting down. I got a window seat, and I'm sitting there, and this passenger comes on board who has the seat next to me. And she sits down next to me, and you looks at I greeted her. You know, I thought of, you know, polite, hey, ma'am, how are you doing today? And she looked at me. She didn't say a word. She just she didn't even nod her head. She just sat down beside me. And in a minute, she rang her button for, we called them stewardess back then, for the flight attendant. She rang that button, mm-hmm. and the flight attendant came, and she said, uh, I-, I need to be moved. And the flight attendant said, well, this is your assigned seat. She said, I want you to put me in another seat. Now, I, I was thinking, well, you still smell like the jungle, Craig. You know, you took a shower, but you took yeah. the jungle rock or something, <laughs> you know. So, yeah. so I just, I really didn't think that much about it at the time. But they moved her, and that flight attendant, she came back to me, and she apologized. And I, at first, I didn't think I, – I mean, I was just a dumb guy trying to get home from the NOM. And, and she said, I'm so sorry. And I said, uh, I said, look, I said, i got two seats now. I stretch out. I'm not across the country. You know, and she, <laughs> said, she said, I mean, I'm, I'm in fast. And then she goes, we'll take care of you. I got first-class meal and drinks all the way back. I'm surprised. Oh, nice. Pull me up. I didn't, you know, when my parents showed up to pick me up, I'm surprised I didn't fall down the steps. I said, well, I wasn't drunk, but anyway. <laughs> so, you know, so I, I didn't at the time, I, I, it just didn't, I just had too much 
other kind of thoughts running through my mind. And then let me tell one more thing, and I'll shut up. It was what happened to Chad for, for me and a lot of my Vietnam veteran brothers and sisters. And, and let me emphasize sister and tell another piece of the story. Uh, in 1972, I met and married a woman, uh, Karen Johnson. She's passed away now. She died from a exposure to Agent Orange, died of a cancer in 2002 at the Seattle VA, and she was a nurse in Vietnam. She was with the 24th of VAC, which was at Long Bend. And no, I didn't pass through there. That's everybody says, oh, she took care of you and all that stuff. No, that's how Hollywood would put it. But truth be told, we <laughs> met in a bar back here. So anyway, so okay. Okay. my brother and sister, you know, we came back. But when we came back, it was so different. I, I had friends of mine that hadn't gone that wanted to friend up again, I guess I'll call it, hang out. I was on 30-day leave before I go on the next news session. And guess what? I couldn't hang with them. And then my best friend from high school, who had been with the 9th Infantry Division down in that Delta and had fought and highly decorated several times for bravery, he and I would go to the go find us a couple of get us a couple of cases of beer, a couple of packs of cigarettes, and we'd go out someplace quiet and we'd sit and smoke and drink. We may never said a word for two hours. We'd just hang out together, if you know what I mean. And I do. And it was. I was still trying to process a lot of things, as y'all all know how we do that. And so was he. And I only felt comfortable. And let me tell you this. I'm going to tell something on myself, and I'm almost embarrassed, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Hell, I'm 72. What can you do to me? I had a <laughs> hot date lined up. I mean, a hot date. Wonderful lady, by the way. She's not a tramp, but, but we were going to Atlanta for the weekend, and we were just going to party it out about two weeks after I got home. We were going to party it out. In one hour before I was to pick her up, I called her and canceled. And my next phone call was to my buddy I was telling you about. I said, hey, uh, let's go get us a six-pack and go somewhere. Just sit. And that's what I did. I, I, Looking back on it, I know what was going on. But at the moment, it seemed like the only normal thing to do, to hang out with somebody who had been there, done that, and I didn't have to say a word to if I didn't want to. It didn't make any difference. You know what I mean? So anyway, guys, I do. You know, it's uh, I no, I I uh, you know I um, can ally with that. And it, you know, one, what's interesting for me is you know I it's it's so weird and it's my transition out of the military is so fresh still. You know, I just got out last year, um, and you know I've spoke with you on multiple occasions about kind of where I'm at and like what's in my head and um, yep. You know, the truth is. Uh, you know, I, I didn't process damn near any of my stuff from overseas until I was getting out because while I was still in, the op tempo was still there, and I was still – my operational tempo was high. I was still engaged. I was with my brothers. Yep. I felt safe, and everything was fine. So it, it's, it's so crazy for me to reflect and say it's 2018. You know, last time I was – when I was in Fallujah was almost – almost a decade ago. And my first deployment was over a decade ago. And, but it's not, it's not the memories of like Iraq and stuff that, that like really mess with me. Uh, but I came home and, you know, I've, I have amazing parents. I'm very fortunate. And, uh, you know, so when I got out, you know, I knew, I knew I needed a surgery and I was, I was living at mom and dad's house for a few months. And every night I just, uh, I'd get a case of beer, pack cigarettes, go light a fire and I would just sit there and, some some nights I'd cry and just, you know, 
look at the sky and, you know, cuss, cuss out our maker for why certain people aren't with us or certain things that happen. And some nights I'd be happy and singing and, you know, howling at the moon, but there's, I, I, it's not, you're, you're, you're better with the psychological side than I am. And we'll, we'll get into that here in a second, but there's something to be said for just that, that solitude that can be had just sitting there. And I'm not saying alcohol is a, is a good uh, uh, medication, but it, there's a little bit of a healing effect when you can just sit there and kind of relax and, and go through it. So I, I, uh, I can definitely empathize um, with what you're saying. Cause I'm, I mean, I, that was me uh, nine months ago. So, um, well, you know, well, Chad, let me also, and I appreciate you saying, and, and, and we'll get into this, but you know, I started in and and we'll get into this more deeply, but let me, I started in 1979, 1980 working with, and then that was when the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder was finally put into what was then called the DSM-3, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And I started working with veterans. I was completing my doctorate at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville, and I started working with veterans, all Vietnam veterans at that time. And, it, and and let me let me make sure. I'm not saying everybody has PTSD. We'll get into that later. But there was plenty of PTSD, depression, substance use, uh, some bipolar, some schizophrenia. There was a lot of things going, especially depression going on, et cetera, anxiety disorders. And I saw all of that. And 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 quite frankly, Chad, it it's interesting because I can tell a story about how it was for me personally. And when I tell it to a group of, of you post-9-11 guys and gals, you can identify a similar time in your life where you may have felt or knew somebody that was feeling and experiencing the same thing. It, the wars are different. Packs are the same, at least from my clinical observations and my personal observations. If you came to me and said, Craig, I like to go hang out with my buddies and one or two buddies or maybe by myself and whether you're drinking or not, but let's say with a six-pack and with a pack of cigarettes, and, and that just at the moment has some comfort and meaning to me, I know exactly what she's talking about, even though it hadn't done it, even though I did it 40 years ago, right? You know, so so in those regards, I had a, in that way, we have so much similar. I had a, a, a really, um, when I was over uh, on the um, at, at MARSOC, I had a really great um, – counselor that I started seeing because I, you know, the closer I, while I was on my medical board waiting to get out and finding out that it seemed like every doctor appointment I went to something else was adding up that I hadn't dealt with for years. Oh, now your shoulder's torn again. Oh, now your back's blown out. Okay. Your, your C5 is twisted. Oh, well, I think you have a TBI and you know, Oh, you have ADHD, which is like everybody who knows me knows I'm like the poster child for ADHD since I was a child, but they're like, Oh, you're finally diagnosed with it. So it's a, that's very defeating in and of itself. But you know, being able to uh, to sit there and, and have to start assessing what you've really done to yourself through your time, whether it's, you know, you guys that did two, three, four-year deployments, um, or, or I did 10 years, you know, um, and so you don't accept it. And so this, this, I had this amazing counselor, and he had a really cool story. He had, he had polio um, when he was a kid, um, still had his leg brace, um, but what, he was a really tough dude, and uh, he was actually one of the first guys that started uh, writing um, uh, about the correlation between injury 
and the psychological effects of, you know, almost loss because you are losing part of what you had. Um, and so, he, you know, he told me, he said, let me tell you what you Marines suck at. And I was like, okay, cool. He's like, I know you guys are good at like everything else, but you know what you suck at? I was like, no, sir. He said, grieving. He goes, what yeah. happens if you're on a patrol, somebody steps on an IED? I said, well, you return fire, gain fire superiority, uh, get the casualty to a, a close place, start conducting, you know, your medical phase of whatever needs to be done, get them medevaced, get them out of there. He's like, okay, check, right. So you just went through step-by-step step exactly what you had to do. That's, that's ingrained in your head. He's like, so what happens afterwards? I was like, well, you, I mean, you continue the patrol. He's like, exactly. That's right. You sit there that's and go, right. what, if it's me, what if it's me next that steps on the IED? What if it's what if it's me next that takes one to the shoulder? What if it what if it's I was like no sir you just keep going and you know and he's like exactly, and so you know I I lost uh, you know I I got married young and um, I lost a, a, a one of um, the people that I had loved the most since I was in high school my high school sweetheart you know she left and I had to grieve about that but I didn't and so he looked at me and he said hey man it's been ten years and you know what you've never done he said no sir he goes grieve he goes. You got a pillowcase? I said, well, yeah, my pillows have pillowcases on it. He goes, good. You know what that's for? Changing them out. He goes, put your face in that pillow. Cry it out, man. You need to start grieving. And I didn't really know what it meant at the time. I'm like, oh, no, I don't need any of that. Like, I'm, I'm good. Like, mm. Well, the truth is now going through my out process and it being a year later, sitting by the fire and, you know, drinking beer and, you know, crying or laughing or, just by myself, you know, that is a process that a decade of time I never went through. So I think that it's something that I, I, I really am passionate about trying to talk to and tell veterans that it's, it's okay to, uh, you know, go out and talk to somebody, which is, I think, a really great uh, way to segue into, you know, the work that you're able to do and, uh, and the Vet Center and, and what you saw from your generation and how that turned into the great work that you did get in the vet center and everything created. Would you mind touching on that? Well, well, I appreciate that, Chad. Let me, yes, and I will. Let me, let me also say this. I mean, you summed up very nicely what was going on with you, which I'm sure has gone on with, and is going on right now with many, many of our veterans. And some of them have just processed out in the last year like you, and some of them it's been 10 or 15 years because one of the things Think about this. When we opened up what then were called Vietnam-era veterans outreach centers, they're called readjustment counseling centers nowadays or vet centers because they're open to all. Back then they were open just to Vietnam veterans. They were funded by the VA, and they were beca- and they were funded because of – there's lots of history behind that. God, I'd love to be able to talk to you all about that. But the bottom line was the VA – the Vietnam veterans weren't going to the VA for lots of reasons. One was over-medication. One was misdiagnosis. One was no respect. Uh, not by everybody in the VA, don't get me wrong, but there were some really bad instances. But let me tell you something. People don't realize this unless you know the history. When Congress funded the money to open vet centers, they gave us enough money to open them for one year. And we were supposed to see all the Vietnam veterans. There was only 9 million of us, 3.1 served in country. They were, we were supposed to see all these Vietnam veterans that needed help in that year, and then everything would be good. Well, funny how that worked out. So the idea being that a place to go 
to start that healing process. And this goes back to what you were talking about. And think about this. This is uh, five, ten years after the war officially ended, the Vietnam War I'm talking about. So when we opened our yes. doors and put the word out and went out finding veterans, trust me, we were swamped. I mean, it, it was a good swamp. We wanted to see these guys and gals and see if we could help them. But what it did, Chad, and it's like for you and others, it gave them – I don't have any problem with being, people going out and, and being in some solitude. I like solitude myself. I seek it regularly. And it's not that I have so large issues anymore, but I seek solitude for lots of different reasons regularly. One of them still goes back, quite frankly, to my time in Vietnam. But what I don't want is that to be the only time – that we talk to ourselves. I want us talking to others just like you've described. I don't care if it's a friend. I don't care if it's the bartender, although I don't want you to get too drunk, but I want you talking with someone about this. Those thoughts that you have out there, if you are grieving, if you are crying, if you're laughing, share it. Please share it. It'll do two or three things for you. One, the persons or persons you share it with, it'll build even more trust than you had with them already. Number two, Check this out, guys and gals. It gives them permission to share. Do you know how many veterans post 9-11, I won't even talk about Vietnam, are, are needing to share, and they're not going to share until one of y'all or somebody I would hope like me gives them some respect and some caring so that they know it's okay to share with me their deepest, darkest, or what's going on with them? The only time we give permission to share with one another sometimes is when the other person shares first. That's the macho in us. Well, you tell me yours, and I'll tell you. No, you go first. No, you <laughs> go first. You know? and, 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 and we go back and forth like that instead of just going, screw it. This is what happened to me, damn it. And then we start that process, the most, starting with Vietnam, back when we did. Chad, when we opened the vet centers, now you talk about the VA not understanding us. We opened from 7 o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock at night, and we were a team of four. We ran therapy groups, if you want to call them that, combat groups, significant other groups, family groups, substance abuse groups, from 6 o'clock in the evening until they ended. We didn't have one-hour group timelines. You walked into our groups, we said, when we're all through, that's when we'll go home. And sometimes that was awful late at night. And, and it was open-ended like that. Now, there'll be clinicians that can argue, and I understand their argument, but I defy them to sit in those smoke field rooms back then with all these Vietnam veterans crying and pouring their hearts out to one another, and sometimes that took a while, and not say that what we weren't doing wasn't the right thing by these veterans. And that's something they weren't getting at the VA. They weren't going to have an open-ended group. They were going to have groups led by other Vietnam veterans. They weren't going to have buddy systems. Even back then, we, we didn't use it like y'all did. We didn't call it that. But we checked on one another all the time. So so uh, I know I can ramble on and on and on. So when we started this back in the late, very late 70s, by the way, it was started during the Carter administration. And back then, the secretary of the VA wasn't the secretary of the VA. They didn't have a cabinet-level position. They were called the VA administer, administrator. And the administrator was Max Cleland. For y'all, to, those of y'all that don't know Max, Max was a triple amputee Vietnam veteran. He was a lieutenant that lost both of his legs and one of his arms. And he is the one 
that said, we need to understand what's going on with other guys like me. Um, and so that's the way we started the vet centers. And, and we, over the years, we made some mistakes. There's no doubt about it. But we learned an awful lot of lessons. Those lessons actually started to take hold sometimes in the VA. Did you know in the 1980s that if you walked into a VA and sat down to do an intake, you're a brand-new veteran walking in, they didn't ask you if you'd ever been in combat. That was not asked on the forms. You weren't even asked where did you serve other than what era you served. If I walked into the <laughs> VA back then and told them I was a Vietnam vet, they didn't ask me where did you serve. They didn't ask me did you see combat. They didn't. We slowly but surely said, folks, pay attention. Pay freaking attention to what's going on with the person in front of you. And so that was how we started checking. Well, and so let me uh, let me just uh, you know say that I go to the vet center uh, for for my counseling. Um, I go I go once a week. I've got a I've got an outstanding counselor. Um, he was a, he was an Iraq vet himself, um, and you know put his love back into the brothers, uh, just similarly to how you've done. I know you know Rob Kennedy, um, and I yeah. I uh, I love what what he does, and I love his. Uh, kind of his ethos about, you know, how uh, when you get out, you're a wandering warrior, but your your ultimate goal is to become an elder warrior. And, you know, maybe one day I'll have him on the show and talk about his kind of how he constructs those. But the, it's a really cool and interesting platform talking about, you know, it, that it's okay to be a wandering warrior and be lost for a little bit and need to need to try and find yourself. And ultimately the goal is to become the elder warrior. But, you know, I think that not just uh, for the Vietnam era guys, but, you know, currently um, there's a lot of people uh, that are disenfranchised with the VA, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan guys that are coming out, maybe still some Vietnam guys uh, that, are, that don't know what the vet center is. So how do we, uh, how can we explain to the listeners um, you know, what the line of uh, delineation is between the VA and the vet center and, you know, how they can speak at the vet center freely and not have to worry about it coming back on them uh, at, at, for their VA percentages or, or uh, any recourse coming from the VA unless they're a threat to themselves or others. Well, yeah, and I appreciate that, Chad, to the, uh, Chad for the chance to, um, to talk a little bit about that. Well, a couple of ways, and, and let me say this. Um, I mean, I know you know this, but let me say, I know clinicians that work in, let's call it the VA proper, the outpatient clinics and the hospitals, who are damn good at what they do and who I would not hesitate to send one of my Vietnam brothers or sisters, one of my post-9-11 brothers and sisters, to see them for services. And you know who I'm talking about, Shad, in one particular case I know, over in the VA oh, outpatient. You, you're talking you know. about St. Stacy? <laughs> exactly. You know, I mean, uh, there's some I love really, that woman. I do anything for her. Uh, uh, there's some good people there, and, and so I want to make sure that we don't say, don't you dare go over there to any place in the VA because there are some really good folks. Now, and she happens to be a civilian, but we've got plenty of veterans in the VA, too, that's helping out. But when you walk into a vet center, at least whenever I was in it, and later on we've kept that, that ethos about it, you will find at least one other Viet one other veteran from your era sitting in there. Now, maybe not us old Vietnam veterans anymore. I mean, hell, we're so old we barely can walk, much less go into the vet center. But you will find a veteran of some sort sitting in there who can truly understand 
or feel for you or even have done, gone through some of the stuff you've gone through, thus identifying with you like that. Go to the records for a second. Back when we started the VA, uh, started the vet centers, the VA was wanting us to do, that was before electronic records, was wanting to do all these patient notes and care notes and all kinds of stuff and paper stuff. And we rebelled, quite frankly. We said, well, there is some, we will keep some accounting, but that accounting is going to stay with us. We're not going to put it into the major medical record. Uh, it will stay with us. Now, if you want it and you get the right permissions from the veteran, we'll be happy to share that with you. But it ain't going nowhere. I was a team leader of a vet center. That simply means I was the kind of the manager of a four-person team. And for any veteran, any request for records on any of the veterans we saw, I would contact the veteran personally before we ever released anything to them. The other thing that happens with that, quite frankly, too, is Again, it's an idea of being amongst your peers, amongst your colleagues that, that you it gave me, and I hope the veterans I worked with, that sense of camaraderie, that sense of trust. Now, let me also be very clear that, you know, I, I practiced, we all practiced what we call tough love. You know, you're only going to blow smoke on me so long before I'm going to draw a line and go, okay, enough of the BS. Let's get down mm-hmm. to what's really going on. And and, and, yep. and and I do that, caring every bit about you. But I'm only going to put up with you. Take off your freaking sunglasses. I want to see your eyes, you know, kind of thing. And, and, yeah. and, dude, we used to have that. I had this guy in my group, and he wore them for the first three weeks. And I told him I was going to go outside and see how I, I could take them glasses off. But anyway, it was, and he laughed, took them off. So and it's, he could have kicked my ass easy. But it was the idea of <laughs> we want to be you. You know, we want to see you. And and that's what happens, I hope and I believe, and you're acknowledging it too. And I know the gentleman you're talking about, the wonderful work he does. Let me also use this for yeah. a moment to plug this for you post-9-11 guys and gals. And first Gulf War. I don't want to forget them. One of the problems, one of the things I see that breaks my heart amongst my generation, not all, but some of my Vietnam veterans, brothers and sisters that I see, and have occasion to encounter, not as a part of a therapist or a group. I speak to groups sometimes, and there'll be Vietnam veterans populated in that group. Is is they're locked in the 60s. They're frozen in the 60s. They're still pissed off at the government. But I'm still pissed off at the government, but it's not going to block me from enjoying the rest of my life, my grandchildren, the beauty of the world around me. Don't get locked and frozen in the 60s. And, and I say to him, are you going to die an angry old man? Because I'm not, you know, that's your choice. But, dude, yeah. let's lighten up, you know? Did well, you and that's where we talk about victimhood yeah. and not being a victim and not, not allowing yourself to, uh, you know, be the victim of an environment, a circumstance, or, uh, or, or what, uh, what you might have had to deal with. Because ultimately we all, well, y- your generation was different with the draft, but – you know, we're an all volunteer force in, in the time that I fought. Yeah. And, you know, so we being able to accept, okay, I, I have to accept some responsibility here and let's move on. I think that's, that's really cool. And if you're just joining us, uh, I just want to uh, let everybody know we're, we're currently speaking with Dr. Craig Burnett, uh, Vietnam veteran uh, platoon commander uh, out there with the infantry uh, from the army. And uh, he's uh, one of the, 
integral parts of uh, ensuring that we have we have a vet center and places for combat veterans to go and speak to. Uh, so if you're just joining us, uh, welcome. Now, uh, Craig, as we as we kind of move forward here, talking about uh, uh -huh. not just the vet center, but how you've been able to to see. Uh, see the issue acutely uh, and, and help to triage it um, with with the assistance of uh, or creating the assistance that might be needed for for veterans of of all generations. Um, what do you see as the biggest struggle right now uh, from the Iraq and Afghanistan guys coming home? Um, well, thank you. I, and and I I almost hesitate to answer because I'm not one that's come home. Although I have a stepson that did, I have close friends that have come home like that, and I've known y'all for a long time. Let me go, let me go back to uh, one step back. That victimization, at some point, Chad, get somebody on here to talk about post-trauma growth, how we can take trauma and actually grow with it and make something positive out of it. And people don't I love it. always grasp that. So at some point, that might be a, that might be a time where we get Rob Kennedy on here and have him talk about back. his uh, his wandering warrior and elder warrior as well as post traumatic growth um, experience. I, and he's uh, you know he's right downstairs at the vet center. Uh, so might have to see if I can't get him on board here in the next couple shows. I think that's a great idea. I, I, I hope you do, Chad, because there really is something to that. I think that's what we were missing more of and why I've still got my old Vietnam veteran guys that are frozen in the 60s and still angry old men and I'm going, come on dude I wish we could have taken a shot at this earlier. Anyway, so all y'all out there, listen up and make sure and know that there's a future. There's plenty of us old Vietnam veterans that went through all kind of crap and we've done pretty good for ourselves. I'm not talking about having a home and a picket fence and a car. I'm talking, of course I got a car and I got a motorcycle and a truck. But the idea being that that we can grow with this, and it doesn't have to be the end of all things, and we don't have to be dependent on the VA for medication, for money. Do you deserve right. it? Of course you do, but that's not of it all. So anyway, going back to your original yeah, question. Yeah, just remembering, right, remembering that, that you know, your VA is, is supposed to be a pension for injuries that you sustained um, while in service and that, you know, moving forward, you're going to have to be your own advocate. Doc's not there anymore to make sure you go to sick call and get your shots and do all your stuff. And, and right. so I think that's important, but I think one of the things that I really enjoy is, as uh, you know, this being um, a few shows in um, each one of my shows prior to this, we've had somebody on. And as you know uh, about me, I'm, I'm huge on getting guys and gals outdoors and around like-minded folks with the same, uh, you know, combat experiences or, or, you know, sexual trauma, because that honest, to be frank, that is something that we're having to start to deal with more and more. It's something that blew my mind uh, because I being in an all male unit, I never really realized how bad it was until I started serving the veteran populace. So sexual trauma, PTSD, depression, anxiety, suicidal ideations, all of those things, if we could start getting folks uh, to know that, you know, go to the VA, get your meds, you know, make sure you're, you're, you're taking them the way they're prescribed, don't overuse them, but really get out there, go do something, find a group that is like-minded, go kayaking, go surfing down in Charleston with Andrew Manzia at Warrior Surf Foundation, get down fishing, uh, you know, with, uh, with the Purple Heart uh, group down with Project Healing Waters with Colonel Anthony Fernandez uh, down in the Everglades and go, go do something like that. Go rafting up in the mountains, go for a hike, go do something and get outdoors, 
change your pattern, change your cycle, and you're going to find that there's going to be great and exponential growth that can come from it and that you're not alone. You've got somebody going through it with you. And that's my big push with this show. So I, I'm, I'm appreciative that, you know, we're on the same page. And, Chad, that is, I'm so glad you're doing that. Let me also add this to it. You cannot expect, just like if I give you a pill for your anxiety, one, you're going to have to take that pill several times and continue to take it for that anxiety to lessen. You can't go kayaking one time and expect your whole world to change. You have to be persistent right. in the pursuits of growth. You cannot grow, well, you might could, but you've got to be persistent. You've got to be persistent in these pursuits. And thank you for saying that because of the depressive the people, depression people, that I have, depressive people that I have treated over the years, and there's been a thousand of them probably, the biggest deal was getting them off their asses and out there doing something. And once we got break that, that cycle. along with therapy, exactly, break that cycle. And you got to keep on doing it. You just, it's got to be maintained. Let me go back. And accept that there could be setbacks and you can still move forward. Sure. Of course, setbacks, of course. You know, we didn't always move forward in the jungle, trust me. You know, (laughs) there were times when we got, you know, we'd have to go, okay, we'll wait right here, y'all. Let's see what else happens, okay? You know, and by the way, yeah, I really, you really touched me because this shows the similarity, Chad. I used to tell this story all the time, and this is when I work in look with clinicians and lay people. I would say, folks, look at the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. One of, besides hypervigilance, we talk about numbness, emotional numbness. Trust me. And think about this. Is an infantry platoon, platoon leader, is this not ironic? I want everybody in my platoon to be hypervigilant and alert And I want everybody in my platoon to be emotionally numb so that when we lose Fred, when we lose Al, when we lose so-and-so, that doesn't stop the mission or us because he's gone, folks. We've still got the enemy in front of us. And if you're screwing around thinking about, oh, this or oh, that, and I'm being cold about it, you're going to get yourself killed and us too. So you know what I mean, Chad? I know you do. I I do. I do. I do. So how do you they go, how do you get through that, Craig? By not thinking about it. Because if I did, yep. and the next moment, I mean, y'all know this, combat is chaos, and we're trying to control that chaos. And that chaos means that my 60 gunner just went down. So my assistant gunner gets there. Then my freaking RTO gets down. So now i got to figure out, you know, and so it's right in the middle of me calling for artillery, too. It's always an ever-changing environment that we're trying to grab control of. You can apply that to some of our emotional lives, too. It's an ever-changing environment that we're trying to get a handle on. And you just outlined some of the best ways to get a handle on that. Am I making any sense, Chad? <laughs> Absolutely. I, I think what we're, what we're driving towards there is, uh, you know, uh, therapeutic compartmentalization. You know, you, you put that stuff away, and, and when it – that way it doesn't impede you when you're in a time of needing to do something else. But when it's healthy, when you're in a safe place, when you're with your friends, maybe you bring those thoughts to the forefront of your mind and you talk about the loss of, you know, a friend and, and you talk about it. And then once it gets to be too much and you're emotionally overwhelmed, put it back away. And then next time you're out fishing, you know, bring it back to the forefront of your mind and just kind of 
chunk away at it a little bit slowly and, and allow yourself to work through it safely, professionally. Use a counselor. Don't try and do everything on your own. Don't, don't self-medicate. Um, but, you know, there are ways to help you get through the grieving process. But for us, as, we, as you know from your generation, as I know from my generation, it takes time. And anything that we can do to help prevent another suicide is everything that I drive for on a daily basis. And I know that's what you strive for, too. Well, Chad, and it's it's like I really appreciate that because, and I'm not saying we had it worse because we didn't, but let me, it is so much on the forefront of the papers and different things like that and what we're trying to do with our veterans, et cetera. And by the way, most people have tunnel vision, though. Only less than 1% of the population, you brave guys and gals, serve nowadays. So it's not on everybody's radar like it's on ours. Teen 73. After Kay and I were married, she left to go to the outdoors and hike. We'd go to the Appalachian Trail to hike. I would hike, and just she was enjoying it so much. And the entire hike, I was looking for possible ambush sites. I was listening mm-hmm. to voices in the distance, thinking, okay, how do we react? What's the safe way out? How do I get her out? How do we retrograde with her so that I can take care? And I was always armed, quite frankly, by the way. And then... That's one thing. Now, I couldn't talk to anybody about that. Nowadays, I hope somebody would know, hey, I can go tell somebody about that. The other thing was, Mm -hmm. and again, a true story, in about 73, 74, I would wake up in about 3 o'clock in the morning, and I'd go downstairs, and I'd put on a pot of coffee, and I'd still smoke, and I'd get my cigarettes out, and I'd take a a legal pad, and I would – Take from that moment on, 3 o'clock in the morning, and I'd backtrack in 15-minute increments for 24 hours and write down in every 15-minute increment what I was doing because I had awakened at 3 o'clock in the morning thinking that I was going out and killing people and hiding their bodies. Mm. Wow. And it was and it was real, Chad. It was real. No, I wasn't, y'all. Whoever's listening to this, don't come arrest me. I wasn't. But it was so real in my mind that I went down there to do that because that's how real it felt. Now, did I tell anybody that? I should have. I should have told Kay, but I didn't. I was, I was, hey, I was scared. I was scared to death of what I had or might become. Folks, if you're out there listening to this, any of those feelings, then get your ass in to see somebody. And let's talk about that because you're not, you're not a vicious person. You're not going to have to end your life to get relief from this. You're not. There's too many of us out here that's more than willing to sit and talk with you and be that friend that you can talk about anything. And if I could talk about this on a national stand like this, you certainly can talk about anything to somebody in private. At least that's the way I see it. Thank you, Chad. Amen. Amen. You know, I, I, I relate to that, man. I, I still can't, I still can't drive over potholes uh, without swerving. Um, you know, being a, being a mobile guy in Iraq, you know, the IED, man, I, I, seriously, I've, I've been, and I let very few people drive me around. I, I do not like others driving. They don't drive the way I do. It's, you know, it's a, it's an (laughs) offensive defensive balance that I have, you know? So, I mean, you see my truck, I, you know, I, I, I can maneuver that thing like it's like it's a small Fiat if I need to, and I know that. And uh, you know, I 
but I'll tell you, I mean, I found myself um, in in the passenger seat of people's vehicles, and they'll they'll hit a pothole, and I'll literally pull my knees into my chest and try and get every bit of distance I can from the from the floorboard as possible. Um, yep. You know, and that's like it's not something that like. I wake up and I'm like, man, I bet there's IEDs here in Greenville, South Carolina today. You know, it's just, it's one of those things, it, it happens so fast and, and it's just instinctual. But, you know, it's um, something that I, I've used is I've started to try and temper down um, my, my hypervigilance. Um, I, you know, I, I used to, I had a first sergeant that said, uh, first sergeant Griffith, man's a, uh, you know, a god among men. And uh, he, uh, he used to tell us, always have a knife and a watch on you always. And he used to, he used to whip his knife out. I mean, I, I watched this dude come out of a shower in Iraq, butt naked with a knife and like pull out his knife. And if he didn't have it, you had to do pushups. So there's naked men doing pushups in the middle of a shower tent, you know? So, but that was, that was ingrained in me. And then it was, you know, I feel like I need to have my gun with me. And so what I did once I got out, um, I started finding times where it would be okay to not have my gun on me. Maybe I had a friend with me, or maybe I was going to a place that I had frequented, so I knew the exits. And then I started getting to the point to where I didn't always have to have my knife on me. And now, I mean, I'm not wearing my knife today. It's rare. I still, I always love a pocket knife, but, you know, it's, it's being able to, it's not going to happen overnight, but being able to slowly eat away at some of those habits that you've had of hypervigilance, of aggression, of anxiety, the panic attacks that come from that random thing that happens when the can of soup drops in the grocery aisle next to you and you're cowering behind a grocery cart that's, you know, completely, the grocery cart ain't going to save you from anything, but see guys crouching (laughs) behind them. So, you know, it's, uh, it's something that it takes time. Um, But I really, I, I would like to thank you so much for being on today. And, you know, just the fact that we're able to talk about these topics openly um, and really highlight the fact that there is a, a great place, um, the Vet Center. And, and just know, uh, listeners, uh, the Vet Center is not the only place you can go to. There are all kinds of resources. Um, there's, uh, the you know, Veterans Crisis uh, phone numbers. Um, but if you are interested in the Vet Center, um, if you've been to combat uh, or deployed to a combat zone, um, you can go to www.vetcenter.va.gov. And just remember, uh, it. While it is funded by the VA, it doesn't mean that the things are going to come back and they're going to go back uh, into your record system. I know a lot of us are afraid of uh, potentially losing our our Second Amendment rights based off of some type of diagnosis. Um, You know, it's a safe place. I'm not saying everybody's great, but I I know that uh, what Craig has done for our community um, from, from his generation to ours um, we all owe you a great, great uh, debt of gratitude for uh, uh, for everything you did and, and it um, downrange as well as coming home with your peers to make this happen so that the Iraq and Afghanistan guys and whatever uh, future wars we have coming, um, that that we have a resource that, that's outstanding. So I'd like to thank you so much for your time today, your knowledge, and, uh, and everything you've done. Well, Chad, I thank you. I'm, I'm humbled. I... Uh... I would say this to y'all. Those of us, and there's about a hundred of us meeting next week. Next week is a reunion of Vet Center Originals, we're calling ourselves. There's about a hundred of us meeting next week to uh, to to share memories, and we swore to ourselves way back when, never again. And we didn't mean that for ourselves. We meant that for the coming generations. 
This was in the 80s when we were making this vow. I challenge y'all to continue that. You've done it. You've picked up where we left off, and you've done a better job, and you will do a better job than we ever could. And I challenge you to keep that up and pass it on to the next generation as well. It is not, it is not an unlikely scenario given that only less than 1% of our population serve in our armed forces. It's not a, it's not a, an undeniable scenario that, like one generation of veterans kind of got lost, there'll be other generations that kind of get lost, unless we still together as a body, a body of experiences, a body of know-how, a body of we will not let this happen to our brothers and sisters. It will not happen. And y'all all know what I mean when it will not happen, what that means. So. Thank you for this time, my friend, and y'all keep up the good work. I admire y'all. You know how much I do. And if there's any way I can ever be of any kind of help, just let me know. Thank you, buddy. Thank you so much, sir. And we'll uh, we'll go ahead and sign you off and close out. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. All right, everyone. That was uh, Dr. Craig Burnett. I'm uh, very thankful and fortunate to consider him uh, an acquaintance and friend. Um, he works with us up here um, in the uh, the upstate of South Carolina. Um, just wanted to kind of recap a little bit and just remind everybody uh, a few things that we dis- we discussed. And that's, one, if you're a veteran, if you're a spouse, if you're a family member and you know of a veteran that is in need, is hurting, don't hesitate to reach out. Call someone. There's veterans crisis lines. There are all kinds of uh, of ways to assist veterans uh, in a time of need. And if they are a combat veteran, once again, uh, please get them over to the vet center if they need some counseling. It's no questions asked. It's just counseling. They're not going to be able to prescribe you meds there, but it's a it's a great way to uh, double down if you are using the VA for for mental health. You know, to get your counseling outside of the VA and kind of segregate the two. Um, and I can only speak from uh, the folks that work below me, but I know that they hire wonderful counselors who um, are passionate and committed to helping to heal uh, the wounds of war. So let me just uh, thank everyone once again, uh, nationwide as well as uh, at a global level. I know our uh, audience base is growing on a daily basis. Um, thank you so much to Lions Radio Network as well as iHeartRadio. Remember, you can go on to iTunes and you can download this. It should be available tomorrow. Uh, And I look forward to our next iteration of the Military Hour with Chad Wooten. God bless and Semper Fidelis.